As we now turn the corner into Luke 22, we're going to take on a bit more text than we normally take on on a typical sermon. But this sermon, as Ben has already mentioned, is not a typical sermon today because we will be studying out the Lord's Supper itself. And so it presents a perfect opportunity for us to look deeply into the Lord's Sermon and then to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper rather, uh, at, the, at the end of the sermon. And so we'll be doing exactly that. And so uh, join with me now in Luke 22. And I'm going to be taking on the entire passage of the setting of the Lord's Supper, which is verses 1 through 38. And a couple spots along the way, so that I don't forget um, after the fact, I'll stop a couple times just to explain a couple things to help us have the, the scene set rather well for what it is that Luke has given us here in this text. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. Those are actually two separate events that are linked together. The festival of unleavened bread begins one week prior to the Passover, and it's the time in which all leaven is to be taken out of the house. And it's a grand ceremony marking the remembrance of the greatest day in the history of Israel. The day that they were released from bondage, the day that they understood that God really did hear them. And heard their cries, not only heard them, but delivered them through the exodus. The great freedom that they were able to celebrate. That's this kind of raucous, astounding dinner slash celebration that all Jews would look forward to every single year. And it's at this great liberation remembrance that the culmination of that week-long festival is the Passover. We know from Exodus 12, the great event of the angel of death passing over God's chosen people who decided not only to trust in him, but to obey him. And in doing so, they were spared. But the Egyptians were so then kind of defeated by the the great works of God that they relented of the slavery of God's people and set his people free through that Passover celebration. And at that Passover, each family was to, to sacrifice a Passover lamb which they would then eat, ready to run, for the the great uh, emancipation that awaited them. And so the Passover lamb was still in effect. As a matter of fact, Passover was such a big deal at this time that there was an administrator, actually the the governor who followed Pontius Pilate, his name was Cestius. And when Nero, who, who became emperor, was really trying to press down hard on the Jews, Cestius tried to convince Nero that these, these Jews are kind of a big deal. And their ceremonies are a really big deal. I don't know if you want to intervene with them. And to prove it, he decided to take a census of how many Passover lambs and how many people gather for the Passover celebration during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And around 64, 62 AD, at a time when when Christians were about to be persecuted, Cestius took this census and he found that 265,000 lambs were sacrificed at the temple during the Passover, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that particular year. And that his best estimate was that 2.7 million pilgrims flowed into the city of Jerusalem during that time. So it's, it's in this setting where Jerusalem is, the, the population is, is multiplied some 20 fold. It's probably 100,000 now, now 30 fold even, perhaps, as it is now really busting at the seams with all of these, these pious pilgrims coming to be able to celebrate the liberation that has been theirs. It was the great caution 
of the Old Testament. Do not forget. Because over and over, the apostasy of God's people came from forgetting. And this feast of Passover of the unleavened bread was meant to be a continual remembrance for them to ponder and contemplate and celebrate the great deliverance that was God's. So this is, this is where we are in this, this very time. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law at this time were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. The assassination plot continues. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. A rather provocative phrase, right? That, that Satan entered him. It seems as though that it, it is not some sort of an idea that uh, Judas is not, in, in other words, portrayed as an innocent pawn in this game where, where Satan is the one who is now just using him. But, but rather, repeatedly throughout the Gospels, he is shown as one who was more than willing to be complicit in this use of Satan for ultimately the betrayal of Jesus. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So it's an ominous beginning to what is really an amazing celebration. But it's ominous because we don't have a mention of Satan in Luke's gospel after Luke chapter 4 to, to this degree of, of him, him acting other than just uh, parables that would include him. But now you see Satan rear his ugly head. The Satan is the way that he's described in scriptures, which would mean the accuser, uh, the, the one who is opposing the work of God. And the accuser has now reared his ugly head. The last time that we see him mentioned it is Luke 4.13 at the end of the temptation of Jesus. And at the end it says, and then he waited for an opportune time. And what does it say here? Here he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. This was Satan watching and waiting, watching and waiting, and finally realizing, now is my moment to be able to strike. And Judas consented. It is the, the language of covenant. And normally when we think of covenant, we think of a, a rather remarkable holy covenant that we make with an almighty God. But covenants can be made at a, ver a variety of levels and a variety of relationships. And here you have a covenant between Judas and the chief priests and Judas and, sadly, the very will of all darkness and evil and, and Satan himself. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent to Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? It's quite a big deal. Think about Thanksgiving, your birthday and Christmas all rolled into one and then multiply it by a few times. And that would be all of not only the magnitude, but the preparations with the bitter herbs, with the, the lamb, with the wine, with the right occasion, all of that to be made just right. Plus, unlike Thanksgiving, where the best that we've got is, OK, we're going to go around the table and everybody say what you're thankful for, uh, that there is a whole dialogue of reteaching 
where a certain son would say, why is this night different from every other night? And then the, the, the father, or the patriarch of the family at that point, would then go on to teach about the importance. And there would be a series of repeated questions. Plus there would be a week-long excitement celebration where leaven would be hid by children throughout the home. And the mother or the father would then take and light a lamp and look through all the little corners of the home, trying to find that leaven to be able to remove any leaven, any impurity that was in the house. And all throughout that week was also a time where the whole house was prepare, preparing the whole family preparing itself to be able to receive the Passover feast in a worthy manner, with all leaven being taken out of their hearts and out of their homes. And it all comes together at this moment where now Jesus says to them, a bunch of guys, go and prepare this great meal. He replied, as you, so how, how do we do this? Well, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, 2.7 million people crushing in together, hustle, bustle, back and forth, back and forth. You think, well, can I go off of something better than that? <laughs> but it is something rather unique because men would have carried water in a kind of a leather pouch, whereas only a, a woman would really be understood to carry water in a jar in this sort of fashion along the way. It would be like, you know, on a rainy day, you know, seeing a bunch of guys with you know, earth-colored umbrellas of some sort or another. But then there's this one guy with like a pink umbrella with flowers all over it along the way. It wouldn't be so hard to spot that guy. He's the guy to go talk to. He'll set things up for you. Now, why, why this little kind of detail that all the Gospels want to make sure that we know about? I believe it is because despite events now looking like a railroad train heading down the tracks of Jesus' betrayal and ultimately his, his suffering and his death, to know that from the very start of it all, Jesus is in control. This has not come out from underneath his sovereignty. He's got it going on. And it's all going to be okay. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks... Where is the guest room and where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Now, most, most homes would only be one story. Certain homes that are a bit nicer would have two stories. But to get to that second story, the stairs would be on the outside. They hadn't really engineered indoor stairs in most of the homes. And it would be usually quite, quite a nice room that would be available to them. And as you would sit down for this Passover where they would make preparations, there would likely be a, a square table with one end of the table being open for the host to be able to sit. That would be Jesus. And then seated around the table would then be of, of greatest importance. So the guest of honor would then be at his right on, on the kind of the right flank of the table. The second of honor would be then seated at first seat on the left and then so on back and forth until you fill in uh, all sides of the table. And this table would have likely been with Jesus sitting at the head. And then on the sides would have been four disciples, four disciples, and four disciples. All along the way, as they were sitting there, you would no doubt be thinking to yourselves, where do I stack up in the pecking order, giving the clarity of seating? It's a, a very shame, honor-driven society. And this is all about honor at this very moment. And so it's very difficult to not be keenly aware of where you stack up based on where you sat. And based on where you sat may have been Jesus 
actually arranging it, or it may have just been the, the way that they came to the table at that very moment. We're, we're not exactly sure, but it will peek out later in some of the dialogue that they have while they're sitting around this dinner table. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. They prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Don't think of a dining room table as you have it. We've talked about this before. But seating in a first century table would have been a table that was only just a a couple, maybe 18 inches high. You would be reclining kind of on your side uh, and, and reclining perhaps on your left arm, eating with your right as you would as you would eat in that fashion. Uh, there probably would be pillows to make it easier. Remember back in the story in Luke 7 of the, of the woman who comes into the home and she's able to wash Jesus' feet as he reclined at the table. Well, it's not that she kind of you know, dug under the table and found his feet and washed them. Your feet are not under the table. Your feet are sticking way out in the way that this dining setup is, is arranged in a, in a first century setting like this. So, by the way. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is quite an interesting tension that is, that is produced very quickly at the beginning of this meal. Because at the very beginning of the meal, we have both celebration and betrayal. In a scene that is being set for both triumph and tragedy. And all of this is coming together at this table. And Jesus has already spoken of now, not only of the liberation of Passover, but of the fact that this event is also going to mark for him his great passion. Or the passion of the Christ means the suffering of the Christ. This comes from a Latin word that just, the, the, the word passio just is the Latin word for suffer. That's why, why we have the passion when we describe the suffering of Jesus. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so as he sets the table, so to speak, from an expectation standpoint, Jesus sets it not only with a look to the past and the deliverance of the mighty, mighty hand of God that thwarted the great superpower of Egypt and what he's able to do there. But then he looks also at the present of what it is that Jesus is about to do now, but then also has a view to the future when the final kingdom of God is made manifest among all his people. And even moments from now, as we share in this Lord's Supper ourselves, we likewise do so recognizing not only the great power of God and his deliverance, as is made clear through historical events that that God has brought us, even the, the great exodus and that lineage of God's people where we find ourselves, but we in the here and now live also having had the additional liberation, the liberation from the power of sin. And we are the kind of the, the beneficiaries of, of that great passion, that great sacrifice that is ours. But we live not just in celebration of our freedom here and now, but we really live for one day to be able to share in this celebratory meal with Jesus himself when all things are made new. And all of this will really be as God has always intended. 
when the end has come, when the fulfillment of all things is brought to bear. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In a normal Passover meal, it's, it's uh, also called a Seder, the, the elements of the Passover meal. During a normal Seder, the kind of, the, uh, kind of uh, events as, as they go according to protocol, there are four cups of wine that are shared during the meal. And this may have been one of the early cups. And during some of the early cups, you sing psalms, Hillel psalms together, before then the different aspects of the meal are brought forth. And every aspect of the meal is a teaching opportunity throughout that meal. And Jesus at the beginning sets the stage with giving thanks. He'll also take the bread and give thanks in a moment. And that word thanks in Greek, the, the verb is eucharisteo, eucharisteo, where we now also have the word sometimes for the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. And why is that? It's from this very phrase, the Eucharist or the, the, the giving of thanks for, for the uh, body and the blood. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And now while there was the cup earlier, it's just one of the many cups, one of the four cups of the meal. But this is the definitive cup that he now begins to point to. After having now definitively looked at, I am the bread of life and this bread, this bread is the sacrifice. This bread is my body. This bread was given over for you. This is my body given for you. The ultimate sacrifice, the great fulfillment of the Passover, of the deliverance of God. All of it coming together at this one amazing meal. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Pregnant words all throughout for everybody sitting at that meal. They would have understood Jeremiah 31, that there was a new covenant that was coming. A new and powerful covenant where not would we be then following laws written on the, on, on, on the page, but now the laws would be written on our hearts. That we would have a Holy Spirit guiding us towards all truth and guiding us towards all righteousness. This blood that was to be spilled was going to establish the new covenant and make obsolete the old covenant because it will involve blood. Hebrews 9 tells us, Hebrews 8 and 9 tells us that the no covenant can be established without blood. But for him to then say, this is my blood, go ahead and drink it, that also would have been another bombshell for those 12 sitting around the table. Why? Because Leviticus 7.27, for example, has clear prohibition against any sacrifice where you would then take the blood of that sacrifice and drink it. The reason being is that Leviticus also tells us is that the life of the animal is in its blood. The life of the creature is in its blood. It is too sacred. And it is to be poured out, never to be consumed ever by, by one who is simply human and, and fallen and unholy. Here's the mind-blowing aspect of the new covenant. Not only are we to take of the, of the body, only the priests did that in the Old Testament. Not only do we take of the body, 
But now what no priest, no hope, a high, um, high priest could ever hope for, no priest ever was allowed near the blood. Other than to use it for, for some sort of ceremonial washing, but never to be consumed. Way too precious, way too holy. Now Jesus is saying to them and to us, you are made so holy in this new covenant that you're to take not just the body, but the blood as well. The blood that cleanses you makes you so holy that you are worthy to take, and not just the blood of some lamb, but the blood of the Son of God. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And think of the insecurity that you would have actually having that conversation one with another. Is it, am I the great betrayer of the Christ? Am I the one who is going to do this unthinkable thing? I, I can't even imagine how you would even like broach it with one another as they would discuss among one another. Well, do you think it's me? Like, how do you think I'm doing? Do you think I've got the ability? Maybe I've done it already. Could I have inadvertently done it? I don't know. But insecurity would be at a peak at this moment. Which makes it so odd about the very next phrase. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Wow! Like that flipped pretty quick. Okay, so enough about whether I'm the betrayer or not. I'm kind of thinking maybe I'm really the greatest. And once the kingdom is made manifest, I'll probably be like the main guy. I mean, yes, Jesus is the main guy, you know, son of God and all. But after that, I'm thinking it's pretty much me. And whatever this world is going to be, I'm, I'm going to kind of be the guy. King of the world. Come on. Check me out. How could that be? But don't we see this in our own lives too? That's right. That when we become in any way self-reliant, or in other words, proud, pride has two sides of one single coin. That's right. And on one side of it is insecurity, and on the other side is this braggadocio arrogance. Yeah. And sometimes we think, well, I'm insecure, and I think, well, you know, maybe, maybe you're thinking badly of me. And, and, and that, that's, not, that's not arrogance. That's just me actually wondering if you're really thinking badly of me. No, it's, the same, it's just the symptom of the same issue. Yeah. That if we're not completely grounded in God, all of these things can rear their ugly heads. We become defensive when challenged rather than recognizing, wow, praise God that a, that a brother or sister is being used right now to refine me for even greater godliness right now. Wow, thank you God for someone caring enough to intercede and actually mention something about what's going on in my life right this very moment. And then Jesus goes on to, to then teach them on this. But here's what's important to note. This happens at the same time that John 13 has happened. What is Jesus just... And, and John 13, 14, 15, 16 is all the, the discourse that Jesus has during this same event. John just captures it from a different angle. What happens in John 13? Well, this is what happens. Jesus, it says, at, at this great moment knew the hour had come for him to leave the world at the Passover festival and to go to the Father. And having loved his own 
in the world, he now loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, this meal. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, after that poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Later on he says, you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, Lord, rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So that's the visual illustration that Jesus just gave them. And now this is the teaching. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, do-gooders. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. He may be saying this as he's on his knees washing their feet at this very moment. And... You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Based on what he's about to say, it seems as though Jesus really appreciates this. You didn't cave, despite the pressures that were all around us. In verse 29, And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And now a very ominous tone changes. And we don't notice it so much in our modern English language. But if you're a first century speaker of either Aramaic or Greek, Jesus repeats the word Simon. Simon, Simon. In the first century, that's the way to put an exclamation mark on a sentence. Without them having those kind of punctuation marks. That's how you did it. Think of Jesus' intervention of Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Think in Genesis 22, when Abraham has the knife over Isaac, what the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham. He's not just saying it because he didn't get his attention the first time. This repetition of the name is the way to help everybody realize, hey, no more distractions. This is huge. What's about to come out of my mouth next? So please key into this, whether it's Saul or Simon or Abraham. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, by the way, you will turn back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Suddenly, the the conversation at the dinner and the atmosphere of the dinner table is as tense as it could imagine be, imaginably be. Lord, I'm ready to go to, with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, sandal, did you lack anything? It's 
back in chapters 9 and 10 when all this happened? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it. Also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak, buy one. As it is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53. It's kind of a big deal that he is making it clear that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Jews wondered, was this referring to Isaiah? Was this referring to some other servant? Was this referring to the nation as a whole? Jesus makes it clear. No, everything in Isaiah 52 and 53, that's referring to me. And what I'm about to do is the fulfillment of the prophets, particularly Isaiah 53. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied, meaning that he wasn't talking about, all right, let's go and find like the best swords we can get. He was speaking figuratively that before no provisions were needed. But what's coming your way next? Yeah, you're going to need need real preparations for what's coming your way. And so when they take him literally with, oh, hey, you know what? We've got a couple swords here for the 12 of us. Jesus is not saying, well, then that's enough for the 12 of you. He's like, all right, just never mind right now. Maybe there'll be a teachable moment later on. (laughs) But it also makes it clear that Jesus is about to go to his passion, to his ordeal, all alone. No one understands. No one is kind of like, you got me. There's none of that. And all he's got now is his love for us that will drive him all the way to that final passion that will be for the forgiveness of sins. One last note I want to make sure that we look at here before we prepare our hearts to take this communion. And that is all throughout this passage, the one thing that is abundantly clear is that there is a vicious spiritual warfare that is waging all about the atmosphere of this scene. I mean, it begins with Judas being prompted, as John says, or being filled with, as Luke says, Satan himself. It begins with Satan now finally coming back onto the scene and using this as the moment to be able to launch what he thinks will be his great counterpunch to Jesus. And then even throughout the scene to to recognize that passion is coming Jesus' way. Suffering is upon him. But this is all for a great and cosmic purpose. And that if Jesus is right and if Luke is right, this is talking about the most significant event in the course of human history. Nothing less. The stage is set and we're discussing exactly that. And he wants us, as we take of the Lord's Supper, when, when we come together, he wants us to be keenly aware of what it was that happened at this first institution of the Lord's Supper. And that despite all that evil wants to bring, Jesus still provides a course of righteousness and deliverance. Even if we've had the bad week, even if we've had a Peter time, that he still nonetheless brings it our way. By the time that um, Paul writes about this, he does call us to take of this sacred remembrance 
of this sacred ceremony that we are to do it in a worthy manner. We don't often talk about this when we take communion, but because we have a minute more time here, is it's also important for us to recognize that we're not to be taking of the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. There's great caution for that throughout 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And, and, and to even put it this way, if, if you've, in a sense, broken fellowship and you've taken a path away from the Lord, then wait until you've really restored that connection with the Lord and with the body of Christ. Because this is a celebration as we all take of the one loaf, 1 Corinthians 11 says, or 1 Corinthians 10, that as you've taken of the one loaf, so we are one as a body. That we do this in a very sacred fashion. That we do this not in a thoughtless way whatsoever. And if it ever becomes routine or ritual, God forbid. Because we end up then very close to that place where the Israelites did. Where things just became kind of repetition. And they just did it thoughtlessly. But for us to always understand the magnitude of this very supper that the Lord instituted. And, and again, if... If you've not been made new by the Holy Spirit, if you've not been regenerated through repentance and baptism, if, if that is not the case for you, then it is not appropriate to be able to share in the body and blood of, of Christ as, as he lays it out here and as the, the Bible continues to make it clear here. We're, we're not looking to be some sort of ex exclusionary club right now, exclusive club. What we want, no, nothing more, is to be able to even celebrate with you. I'm so excited that, you know what, today, Jaden takes communion. Praise God. Right? That, that, that Jessica takes communion. I think she was able to last week because she got baptized. And, and, and likewise, uh, that's the, the, the very case, um, uh, even for Damaris, that, praise God, that that's now your ongoing life of continually remembering the great spiritual warfare that Jesus has brought you through, brought you to deliverance, and has done it through nothing less than his own body and his blood. We're going to have an opportunity to, to, to sing, to really prepare our hearts. At the end of the song, the song leader, I think it will be Scott, will then pray again for the body, for the blood, for the bread and the wine, and for us to be able to take communion in a refreshing and, and excited manner, to recognize all that the Passover represents, all the liberation that is ours, all the deliverance that is ours, and to even recognize that as we take of the bread, we recognize that we, like priests, have this honor to be able to have participation in the great sacrifice, the great sacrifice of Christ. We understand that it is bread, but we also understand what it represents. And then also, the great holy privilege of being able to drink the cup the blood of the new covenant instituted by nothing less than Jesus himself as he overcomes evil and establishes forever the great victory that will be the establishment of his kingdom to come. And we look forward to one day taking it not just now, but taking it with Jesus himself when all things are made new and we all come together at that great banquet with our Lord and Savior. We'll pray, we'll have this song, and then we'll prepare our hearts one more time through prayer after the song. Oh God, what a joy. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us so squarely before Jesus in this passage. Thank you for capturing this. Thank you for showing us all that Jesus is able to overcome. But also, God, thank you that in 
in the midst of all of the pressures and all the hustle and bustle of that feast of unleavened bread and that Passover at that particular time, that Jesus was able to see through all the clutter. Why? Because he loves us so dearly and he hates our sin so dearly and he wants our deliverance from it and stopped at nothing to be able to provide it for us. I pray that we do well in remembering and that we take in a worthy manner and that we celebrate what it is that Jesus is able to do. Yes, we all sin and we all fall short. And, and even as we do sin, that your blood continually washes us from all sin. We understand that we're not perfect, but that we are redeemed and that we have your spirit and we are made holy to a degree that we can't even begin to appreciate. So holy that we can take not only of the body, but of the blood to be able to take of the bread and of the wine. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.